listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Hello everyone, this is Kyle Matthews from the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We're pleased to have another interview for the Coronavirus Diaries, talking about human rights in the age of the global pandemic. Today we have uh, renowned Canadian journalist Terry Glavin. Uh, Terry writes for Maclean's Post Media. He's also a fellow at the Raul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Um, Terry, glad to have you on for this interview. Well, thanks for having me. So Terry, I'm going to get right to it. You. Um, Anyone who follows you on Twitter, they know that you've got a lot to say about human rights, but you've particularly been following the case of China and authoritarianism, so you understand um, what's at stake. Um, I'd like to talk, you wrote a, an extremely uh, powerful piece for Maclean's that was released last Friday about how how China, it's Xi Jinping's moment, and he's taken advantage of this. I, I'm wondering if you could just tell us what you see happening. How is China reacting in the propaganda department regarding this current health? Well, I think for me, I, I worked, I've been working on that particular angle, uh, I, I think 13 or 14 days. And uh, it was, you know, quite a deep dive from McLean's, but there's a lot on the cutting room floor, so to speak. I was focusing in on five days in February. The main, the main events were February 3rd, to, and February 6th. On February 3rd, Xi Jinping met with the Politburo and the speech was released about a week or two later. And uh, I've seen two or three translations of the speech. But the main takeaway points were that he'd been uh, running the show since the 7th of January. You may remember that he was sort of in the background. He didn't want any public, he wanted, didn't want to be publicly associated with the coronavirus outbreak at all. Uh, he'd been running running the show since the 7th of January, and the main message he was giving to party the party leadership was they should focus on two things. The first was uh, what he called, well, there's a number of translations, but essentially it's we have to ensure that China is not isolated. We can't have China isolated from the rest of the world. You know, the importance of the, its export markets, its export-driven economy, uh, the, the the air lanes have to be kept open at all cost. And the second was a focus on, translates into English as dis- diplomacy propaganda. And that's actually quite key. And the number of, uh, it was aimed at both, of course, a domestic audience and a foreign audience. Uh, the domestic audience uh, propaganda was hinged to a great extent on uh, kind of third party confirmation and affirmation. So, you know, they would trot out the World Health Organization. Uh, they would trot out the president of Serbia. They would trot out uh, foreign minister, our own foreign minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, very early on and prominently and a number of times. And they trot out uh, or make reference to Canada in a number of occasions, making reference to our health minister, Paddy Hadjou. And... Um, the uh, the other thing that was really, really fascinating from my point of view, because I, I, I watch propaganda very closely, having, you know, spent a lot of time in the Middle East and covered the uh, 
crucifixion of the Syrian people, the degree to which the Russian disinformation on chemical weapons use by the Assad regime, uh, uh, casting the white helmets as a branch of al-Qaeda, denying the, that, that the regime was even using barrel bombs. The thing that was interesting to me was that China had begun to engage in similar kinds of disinformation. And people who watch this stuff, uh, the, the Stratcoms people in Europe, uh, NGOs uh, like the Alliance for Securing Democracy had noticed this too, and much in a much more sophisticated way than I had. And also uh, ProPublica in the United States, which is an investigative journalists consortium. It's not, it's not like they haven't done this before exactly. The people in the Obama administration that first um, noticed what the Russians were doing in the, in the 2016 American presidential election, uh, two years ago pointed out that they had seen China start to do this stuff too in Australia. And the whole point of, that, of, this, of this kind of what we call Russian-style disinformation is not so much to, you know, to simply tell lies and, and enforce a particular narrative, right? Um, it's not either or, but it's not just, you know, there are, there are no concentration camps in Xinjiang. It becomes, well, you know, there are re-education camps in Xinjiang. Uh, there, are, there are vocational training centers in Xinjiang. And uh, so, you know, China had done this before to some extent, and they also had the capacity to do it. They developed uh, the, uh, public, the public information department, uh, the organization department uh, of the uh, Central Committee of the Communist Party had, 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 had developed a capacity to do this sort of thing. And it was very noticeable in Hong Kong in the summer of 2019, last summer. Uh, they, you know, there was sort of army of people on social media, on WeChat, on Weibo, and noticeably on Twitter, which of course is aimed outward because you, you know, it's blocked in China. Mm -hmm. So they had the means. Uh, they had, and they, and everything starts to mobilize after that February 3rd speech. And any number of the most absurd conspiracy theories were being circulated. Uh, the whole point of disinformation, sort of Russian-style disinformation, is to throw you off balance. Is to, you know, RT uh, News is a classic example of this. We're quite familiar with it because it's an English language effort. Is that, uh, you know, it has all the appearance of a, of a professional news organization. And they will indeed port news. But what they do is they throw in the most absurd, you know, sort of experts from the West <laughs> to uh, cast doubt on what is so routinely described as the official narrative. And of course, we're all schmucks if we simply agree with the official narrative of 911 <laughs> and so on. It just sort of throws everybody off balance, right? And so uh, the whole point of that, uh, and, and Russia, by the way, ramped up like crazy after the coronavirus, directing mis uh, disinformation of that kind at European audiences. Uh, this is very well document documented by the European Union and its uh, foreign policy arm. And they have a dedicated, very dedicated team that looks at disinformation and the, the implications. And the, another really interesting thing was that in this strange ecosystem, there was this sort of, uh, I don't know if it's cross-pollination or, you know, genetic transfer between species of disinformation, but it was Iranian, Russian, and Chinese, and of course I'm referring to the regimes, 
amplification of one another's conspiracy theories and, and so on. Iran was, you know, I mean, everybody laughs at Iranian media. You know, they were Zionist agents and, uh, you know, uh, engine, the coronavirus was engineer, engineered in a lab in such a way as to uh, seek out the Iranian gene. Just hilarious stuff. But, um, you know, melding that with Russian stuff and also fringe third-party websites. The most noticeable and hilarious in Canada, and I, they threatened to sue me once years ago, was uh, the Center for Research on Globalization, which is centered in Montreal, or it's one guy, a well, bunch I, of weird. Well, I was going to ask you about that because, um, yeah, I know that group, the most fringe theorists, they're all kind of neo-Marxists, the, the back yeah. Maduro. Uh, I, I, we organize events in Montreal with the, uh, with the interim Venezuelan ambassador to Canada, and we had all those groups show up at my office and try to... I remember that. But it's a, it's a small circle of people that, that, yeah, they're conspiracy theorists, and the fact that the, as you mentioned, that the, um, that the uh, spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry is citing this website as proof of some U.S. involvement uh, or the U.S. Army in planting this in Wuhan in, in October is so far-fetched. The South China Morning Post yesterday had an, an absolute... It was almost like genome sequencing, looking at the viral disinformation of that particular period that involved the Center for Research on Globalization and, and, and engaging in, a, in an entire sort of forensic reconstruction of how that deception was carried out, you know, because it looks so convincing, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're not careful, if you're not, if, you know, if you just sort of take these people for granted, oh, they seem to have proper anti-imperialist credentials. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, and, and the sort of the weaponization of information, we, we, a lot of it, it seems to me, our susceptibility of it is something that I think we should be paying closer attention to. Why have we become so vulnerable to what you might call fake news or disinformation, Trumpism? I mean, um, you know, how, how is it? that the broad left, if you like, in the United States found itself uh, so ill-equipped to, to deal with the fact that, uh, you know, Donald Trump, and I, and I don't want to be partisan and mean about this, and it's very fashionable, and you can get away with saying anything about Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, objectively, I think, because I sort of think of myself as, as a person of the left, uh, general, very generally speaking, um, and, and it seems to me that there was, uh, after 9-1-1, there was, uh, you know, a general disorientation across the political spectrum. It was like everybody suffered a blunt trauma wound to the head. Everybody went a little bit crazy. Uh, the American culture particularly was not constitutionally, culturally, politically prepared for something like this. Um, and it also occurred at a time when technology had changed really, really, really rapidly so that a couple of kids in a garage in Chicago could produce what until very, very recently, you know, would look like a CBS 60 Minutes documentary and had all kinds of visuals to support, uh, you know, crazy ideas about 911 and the planes going into the building. And the technology was, you know, everybody had cell phone cameras uh, or digital cameras in, of one sort or another. So there's hundreds of hours of, of footage that, that, you know, you could manipulate uh, and in such a way as to 
support, you know, crazy and wicked and very, very sinister and dangerous ideas. Um, and unfortunately, at the time, you know, in the universities, uh, and, and, and it kind of seeped out from the universities across the left, is this sort of problematization of the truth and, uh, you know, a, a, a descent into epistemic relativism, you know, um, the truth claims um, are no longer sort of require objective evidence and empirical evidence and testing, but they're, they're very, very subjective, you know, that the, the veracity, the privilege that we accord various truth claims are unmoored from the 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 conventional even marxist assessment of their uh, of their veracity and and, and viability right well, yeah I, I agree with you it's that the emotion means matters more than um than what evidence is suggesting the identity stuff too works into that unfortunately and i mean you know my i i should like to think my anti-racist credentials will stand up against anyone's but uh the the we've had a real difficulty with this on the issue of dealing with china the conflation of chinese ethnicity uh and the interests of the chinese diaspora uh in western countries with the regime in beijing yeah. um and you know this can be manipulated in ways that suit the purposes of the racist right um and if you know you, you have to be very very careful I think to you know weed out a lot of stuff that presents itself as anti-racist, mm -hmm. but is 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 actually quite uh, sinister and deceptive. The Chinese government does that a lot. You know, you might remember where you know the the, the Chinese ambassador Lu She, the former ambassador, characterizing Canada's concern about the kidnapping of Michael Kovrig and Michael Michael Spavor as a white supremacy. Uh, I, I remember calling that and, and it was, it was close, but, but you see how the Chinese, at least diplomats are looking at discussions in Canada currently, the polarization of the left and the right, identity politics, and they're using that against us. And any criticism of, of you see uh, of the Chinese response or any culpability for the spread of the coronavirus to a global pandemic is now being used the same way that, oh, you're, let's just collaborate together, you're being racist, don't, don't condemn the Chinese people. I mean, it really is, they're using this, authoritarian states are using this to create more division. Um, yeah, Western yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I've, this has been going on for a while. This isn't something that just started February 3rd. I remember 10 years ago, I was one, and it's been kind of lonely when you cover this kind of stuff as a journalist in Canada. It's not now though, which is great. I used to worry about getting scooped because most journalists do. I don't worry about that anymore. It's great. It means somebody else is writing this stuff, right? But about 10 years ago when the Harper government was being badgered to approve the, uh, what was it? The 15.1 billion, I think it was, takeover of Nexon by the Chinese National Offshore Oil Corporation, CNOC. And the Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises was they they were buying up strategic spigot points in the uh, the oil patch in Alberta, and a lot of people uh, in, in the Conservative Party were concerned about this, and cabinet was split, and at the time just writing about this stuff just take just noticing it, uh, and you'd be called sinophobic, and then this is really seriously enfeebled and infantilized the public debates about. Chinese capital uh, and its impact on the real estate industry in Vancouver. Uh, you know, Vancouver is, you know, 
from year to year is is in the top three of the most uh, the least affordable cities on earth, and you know the Chinese elites, the princeling caste, if you like, would root and and a lot of white people in the real estate industry would trot this stuff out. Uh, you know, oh, it's sinophobic and xenophobic uh, to you know be concerned about the immigrant investor program or whatever. And the interesting thing about that is because I I grew up out here and most of my most of my sort of interlocutors and collaborators on these issues happen to be Chinese. <laughs> and the most effective and intelligent activists in Vancouver on the real estate issue, you know, their, their first language was Cantonese, even if, you know, they might have been second or third generation Canadians. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they were the ones who were saying, hey, wait a minute, are you kidding me? I mean, are you calling me a racist? <laughs> uh, so it was, you know, it's become difficult for this kind of uh, bullying and disinformation to succeed it still happens i see it all the time and it's uh it, it's particularly dismaying when i see my own government my own prime minister the health minister the foreign minister engage in this the same thing you know oh sti- we must we must we will, must be careful not to stigmatize people well, and so, so, well jerry let's start with this because that is you know at the early on of this crisis um there were a lot of calls that maybe we should follow the americans uh close flights to china we didn't know what was going on we didn't do it and now i'm, I'm in montreal and this is now uh, you know center point for all this like we have the highest number of COVID cases, our, our human rights have been hurt through the movement, people are losing their jobs, it's serious. But, but it, you've talked about how the government has, has not been that forceful, not strategic. I want to get back to the Canadian government. Last week you saw the health minister, uh, people were, journalists were asking her, do you believe in the official stats of, of, of deaths and number of infected cases in China? And the health minister uh, responded, basically taking the Chinese position and basically calling it conspiracy theory. Um, and at the same time, you know, should we should we question Chinese data? I think we should because it's a closed state; they don't always tell the truth. What's your take on all of this? There's a couple of things going on here. You know, this is a we're in a state of emergency. Okay, call it a public health crisis. You know, this isn't the measles. We have seen this is like nothing we've seen since the Second World War. And um, public trust in our institutions, uh, particularly when the, the mobilization against the enemy, to use you know unhelpful warfare metaphor, uh, requires such vast social commitment. Right? It's all about us. It's, you know, the government. Well, the government can't do much except you know source personal protective equipment for the hospitals at this point. Uh, it, 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 you know, it depends on a, a major public consensus that sacrifice, we all have to sacrifice, uh, uh, you know, make, make serious sacrifices to get through this. And at a time like this, public trust in our institutions is absolutely, it's, it's win or lose. This is the, it, everything will fall apart unless we do have that deep trust in our government institutions. So I've been kind of holding back, you know, uh, watching this unfold. But after last Thursday, I guess it was, when had you, I mean, a, a reporter asked, okay, you know, you got the American intelligence community and the CIA saying, you know, we really shouldn't trust Chinese government figures about infection rates and so on. And she, this arrogant and outburst, 
you know, and paradoxically referring to conspiracy theories. Are you kidding me? China is the main source of conspiracy theories on this issue. Um, you know, there's a number of times when I really wanted to knock one out of the park uh, over the last three weeks, and I just haven't. Uh, because, you know, there are a couple of things. If you look at the data, the social sciences data uh, in the United States polling, polling data, the gulf, the spread, the gap between Americans who take this seriously and Americans who don't. Red states, blue states, right across the board, age groups, urban centers everywhere, is widening, right? Yeah. So it's like the American system, the American political culture is kind of broken. And the last thing we want to do is see that thing, that, that, that phenomenon take root in Canada. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have been holding back, but I regret to say that, you know, at the, the, and I'm not at the end of this very, very soon. In fact, now we should all be calling the government on its tragic and catastrophic error in believing the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization takes its data from the Chinese government and gives it to the rest of the world. And by the time 80 countries, 80 countries around the world had finally said, you know what, we all know this is a bit of a fiction and we better not, you know, we better do something about it, had progressively, you know, dealt with uh, flight restrictions. By the time Canada caught up, and and on, Canada only caught up. Canada actually didn't impose any flight restrictions on, on the, the centers like Iran and China. Um, Canada just you know sort of did this sort of blanket ban. You remember that? You know, yeah. no foreigners uh, should come to Canada except for the Americans, and that's kind of complicated. Um, and uh, at every hand's turn, I mean, I'd like to think there's a defense that we could make of the World Health Organization leadership and Tedros and that they could not actually get into China. They were held up for weeks, I think two and a half weeks before a WHO team could even get into China. Uh, 25 people on the team, there were supposed to be 12 Americans. No, the Americans weren't allowed in. The, you know, the, the American Center for Disease Control wanted to get in, they couldn't. And, and so, you know, a case can be made that the Tedro, Tedros, the, the director general of the World Health Organization, has been telling us good, you know, telling a good lie, right? Lying to us in order to get into China and get information from China. But that, I mean, that defense actually doesn't hold up very, very well. Um, the disinformation and misinformation that came out of China from the very beginning, suppression of data, the very day when when Patty had you said, oh, you know, there's no reason to think that China is uh, is misreporting or underreporting data. Okay, four days earlier, uh, Wang Yi, the Chinese premier, or Li Keqiang, had after riots in China and you know in most other countries of the world, uh, you know, you know the disgrace and shame of having admitted to underreporting. Uh, finally said, okay, we're going to start counting and, uh, and, 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 you know, asymptomatic cases, right? Um, because they weren't counting asymptomatic cases. The South China Morning Post got data that showed that uh, rather than 82,000 infections in uh, Wuhan, Hubei, and, and, and environs, it was more like 125,000. 
That's massive underreporting. The Chinese government had already admitted, and they had all these interesting excuses and justifications for not counting asymptomatic uh, infections, positive tests. But they have been admitted to their own underreporting. Editor of the uh, the China Daily, which is directly owned by the publicity department, the propaganda department of the Communist Party of China, praising Patty Hadi, our own health minister, as a role model, okay? And, 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 and criticizing Canadian journalists for the, these questions, you know, as mischief makers and paparazzi. This doesn't look good. And, you know, you'd have to be, you know, one of these slightly deranged Trudeau partisans to fail to see something amiss in this. And, 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 you know, this is the thing is that uh, what I started to do, because I didn't want to get into the politics of it, and, and I'm, not a, I'm not a science, so it's hard for me. It takes a while for me to walk through this stuff. But if you, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology first pointed us to this, uh, it's, a public, it's an aggregation database where public labs in countries all over the world, including China, you know, everybody sends their information about the genomic sequence of each tested case of an infection um, and you know it goes into a central database and you can trace the family tree of uh, you know so I think at the time about well, a week ago it was about four or five distinct family trees of the virus uh, in each of these cases of infection and you can actually trace that tree back and you can see you know they've done it very interestingly and visually in a time space data series that Okay, this is where, how it got to Montreal. Yeah. This, is, this is how it got to BC and when. And you look at that data and it was all flights coming into Canada. Yeah. It was all flights coming into Canada when we were saying, you know, no, don't worry about flights coming into Canada, right? And it was, I guess, two weeks ago, uh, until two weeks ago, uh, 80%, 76% of the infections in Canada were travelers. 4%, so 80% altogether were like immediate contact with a traveler. And it's only, I think, on Tuesday of this past week that community transmission has caught up to travelers, right? So, I mean, it's hard to say it, it, to be fair, you know, when you look at the way exponentials work in, um, in uh, predictive analytics, you can't say, well, if we shut down the border, we wouldn't have this problem. I mean, obvious, that's obvious, mm -hmm. but you can't, you know, you'd have to sort of engage in a kind of retroactive clairvoyance to be able to say this is how much of a difference it made. But the reality is it made all the difference in the early going when uh our health when the world health organization was saying it makes no difference and when our government was saying closing the borders makes no difference now here's the thing the second half of, of xi jinping's sort of order on february 3rd we can't allow the airlines to be closed we can't allow china to be isolated we have to keep the doors open open door open door right that's what that was all about. Oh, I, I agree. No with public you. health advantage to us at all. It had a, it was a, to 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 provide an economic uh, advantage to Xi Jinping. That's why the flights kept were, were kept open. So so just Terry. I, I, so there's ultimate failures here, and and I think you know there's a lot of blame to go around. My, my concern is that 
you mentioned that what we're seeing is unlike anything we've seen since World War II, or unlike anything we ever come across, that we're making enormous sacrifices, um, our economy is in a tailspin, There's this is gonna be a long-term structural challenge for our country. And people are gonna start getting angry. Uh, they usually yes. So, so the part of the, of the Chinese propaganda is deflect any blame of China having any responsibility for this, trying to push on the Americans. And then we have a lack of trust in the United Nations, which is growing by the day. And then a growing concern about the decisions made by our government on this. I mean, we've got a perfect cocktail of, of mistrust in multilateral institutions and our own government. Um, how do you see this this playing out? I mean, do you have a crystal ball, or, or, or how do you see? Yeah, it? good one. Um, one thing I, I I've tried to sort of say in, in the backgrounders and the and the sort of analyses that I mean that's sort of my job that I'm doing for McLean's and the National Post and the Ottawa Citizen is who the hell knows basically. I mean, like I was with my buddy the other day. I was joking, like for all we know, because of the way. You know, all of these un unanticipated things and all of the just countless variables that you have to factor into, you know, the modeling. Um, for all I know, you know what? A month from now, this might all be behind us. There might be some super vaccine that some whiz kid in Palo Alto develops and it's easily diffused. And, you know, you just take a pill and everything's fine. Or it's like some zombie movie, you know, and I'm up, I'm up in the hills with my rifle shooting grouse to stay alive. And I don't know. I mean, that's the difficulty with this. So I think the, 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 the only thing that I think we can do, like most Canadians, most ordinary citizens, trust your provincial governments. Maybe we should be paying less attention to Ottawa. Even though, you know, my focus, my job is sort of, you know, international affairs, foreign policy, and all that kind of stuff. In a time like this, how are our provincial governments doing, right? And what are they doing? Um, and, you know, let's look at the division of labor between the provinces and the federal government. And you look at that, and we're, we're actually, you know, you've got a really interesting and very heartening thing happening when you've got an NDP government in British Columbia, uh, John Horgan's the premier, and you've got uh, Rob Ford. Is it Rob Ford? I always mix up with Ford Brothers. It's uh, Doug Ford. Doug Ford, Premier of Ontario. Uh, and, you know, sort of populist right-wing guy and a, and a, you know, old-fashioned, you know, working-class proletarian left-wing guy. And they're talking the same language and they're being nice to one another and everybody's kind of, you know, figuring it out. And, uh, I, you know, I think... The, you know that that that's heartening to me so you know looking at the future if those kinds of um social if that kind of social values social goods are, are still with us i think we're going to be okay it's going to be brutal but in terms of the the bigger picture not just the long term anymore but it, you know like the immediate like right now xi jinping is making his move uh, you know, made in China 2025 and then, you know, the 2050 thing, uh, you know, reshaping the world order in the image and likeness of the Chinese Communist Party, displacing the United States and the European Union as the sort of model for globalization, capturing uh, key uh, global supply chains, which we've already seen in medical equipment. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and also in information technology, they're already making their move. Uh, Huawei, by the way, is central to this. Um, Huawei and two other state-owned uh, telecoms in China 
and the Ministry of Information and Industrial Technology in China will be going to the International Typographical uh, Telecommunications Union uh, in November. The ITU is one of uh, 15 UN agencies and China already controls four of them directly. They control the World Health Organization indirectly. Um, they're going to uh, the, uh, the UN in November with a plan to essentially take over the architecture of the entire global internet. They are putting all of this in hyperdrive, right? They've seen the future and they, they're, they're, they're back up and running. You know, uh, the, the economic data from China is always, you, you we're always right to question it. Um, but all of the evidence, or at least there's no counter evidence to the claims that the uh, Chinese uh, government is making with respect to the resumption of economic production. Even in, uh, in, in Wuhan, the, the epicenter, and Hubei, they're 75 to 95% up and running again. They're going. Meanwhile, the rest of us are in deep freeze. We're, in, you know, we're on life support. So. So, so Terry, I want to ask you one last question. Um, let you get back to your pleasant Sunday of self-isolation. The uh, narrative is emerging that China, um, you know, bungled this at the start, hid information so that it wouldn't impact the party, and now it's spread to the world. We're all on lockdown, and China's at the same time making these moves to to take advantage of the situation to come ahead. I foresee, or I imagine, there could be some, you know, a growing anti-China backlash, particularly anger, not at. China, people of, of, of Chinese ethnicity, but of, of the, at the Chinese government. And I'm starting to see politicians in Africa, Asia, asking for reparations. Do you see this as something that's good, that could challenge the, 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 the Communist Party of China with their, their grand objectives, that, that this could lead to a major backlash? Definitely, definitely. And I think, you see, the, the, the Politburo is and has been from the very beginning acutely uh, aware of this possibility. And everything that they do has been geared to dealing with that, right? The reliable partner propaganda, that's actually a term that keeps showing up, you know, and people who, I mean, I can talk trash about Donald Trump as well as anybody. But, you know, you start to see people referring to China as a more reliable partner than Donald Trump, all this kind of stuff. In Europe, particularly, and it's the right wing parties, the populist parties, that have begun to push this, the Italian far right, the Serbs, the Hungarians, uh, you know, China's great, you know, screw NATO, screw the European Union, you know, China, we, China's got our back. Um, in the liberal democracies, uh, things are actually not as clear because we have the very strange disconnect, particularly in Canada, where, for instance, Pew, uh, Pew Global Attitude Survey, magnificent project that they've been running for years in a number of sectors. I think December, uh, and I believe it was 20 something, 27 something countries, I may be wrong, looking at public attitudes about the Chinese government, like, how, you know, what do you think about these people? And can, Canadians were right up there with, I think the Swedes and the Japanese, top three, in having a low opinion, a really, really low opinion of the Chinese government. Um, and yet, the government of Canada is uh, almost unique, certainly in the G7, probably in the, G, in the G20, in, you know, the way we suck up to China. I mean, there's a real, and I don't, I, I, this is not, you know, this is objectively true, you know, it's just, 
unimpeachable. I, I, you know, I, I don't mean to be mean and I don't mean to be partisan, um, but it's just true uh, at any number of levels. So you've got, yeah, you've got that kind of backlash that, that uh, you know, goes up and down in the, in the opinion polls and it's certainly, you know, going way up now. What that will mean to the Canadian government, what it's going to take to shift a government um, that still has taken no retaliatory measures or protective measures, you know, since December 2018 when they kidnapped two of our people in a direct, you know, retaliation for merely acting on on an, a, a U.S. extradition request. I mean, Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, she's free to leave Canada anytime she wants. She's hiding here. You know, the Chinese are using this wedge between Canada and the United States because people don't like Donald Trump. You know, a lot of people think, well, you know, anything Trump says about uh, the Chinese, when he tr tr talks trash about the Chinese, he, he must be lying. Um, and uh, every time somebody says something, well, you know, at least the Chinese are sending in all of these plane loads of gear. They're better than Donald Trump. Um, you're right. You know, we're, we're heading to a moment of profound disorientation. And my, you know, one can only hope that we kind of keep our heads through this, or give our heads a shake and perhaps not be quite so willing to engage in partisan, you know, the weaponization of information and, and so on. Inshallah, there will be a reckoning. Well, Terry, with that inshallah comment, I think that's the perfect way to end this, this talk. Um, there's gonna be a lot to see. I look forward to seeing what you're writing uh, in the next few weeks about this and, uh, and let's stay in touch. Okay, I hope I was helpful in some way. <laughs> Thanks, Terry.